Please be seated. This is a strange time of year, the week after Christmas. For many of us, it maybe it was a great Christmas. And for some of us, though, maybe it didn't feel like such a great season after all. All this time of expectation and building up, all these hopes for um, the time that you're going to have with your family, for maybe travel to go see friends. Um, maybe the hopes for what you were going to receive for Christmas, maybe it didn't quite pan out the way you wanted it to, Uh, or maybe your hopes for what you were going to give to someone else for Christmas. Maybe that didn't turn out quite the way you wanted it to either. What do we do with that? We get a lot of suggestions for that. Um, This week I got in such a helpful email from the Apple Computer Company, and they sent me an email and it said, you've shopped for everyone else, Now it's your turn. Is that going to be what's going to scratch the itch? We've spent, even here at church for the past month, during the time of Advent, preparing for the coming of Jesus, talking about the fact that Jesus is the thing that we most need and the thing that we most long for. And maybe at the end of Christmas you feel like anything but uh, the super-Christian who might want to head up to Maine. Well, the church's answer to our question often of what comes next, we've gone through Advent and into Christmas, the next season on the church calendar, the next, the next celebration on the church calendar is this week, it's January 6th, and it's called Epiphany, and we're Presbyterians, we don't know what Epiphany is, so I'll remind us. <laughs> Epiphany is the day where we celebrate the revealing of Christ, and traditionally that's been seen most clearly when we look at the text of the wise men coming to visit Jesus at his birth. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be looking at uh, these wise men in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. So if you'd like to turn with me, that's on page 807 of your pew Bible, if you have one of those Bibles in front of you. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. And before we read this text, let's pray together. Father, we come uh, to this text, it's your word, and we pray that you would open it for us, and that you would open our hearts to you. We need a word from you, we need to be spoken to by you, and you are a God who reveals yourself to us. So we pray you do that this morning. Give us ears to hear, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. 
When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That was then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So this morning we're going to take a look at this story of Epiphany, this story of these, of these three wise men who come to visit Jesus. We're going to find just three things we're going to look at in the story about what Jesus does in our own lives. Here are the three things he does that this story is going to show us. Jesus brings a crisis and he sends us on a journey and he gives us a new treasure. Jesus brings a crisis, he sends us on a journey, and he gives us a new treasure. First, Jesus brings a crisis. What's a crisis? Uh, it's a moment of decision in life. It's a moment when something happens that changes everything. And Jesus brings a crisis for these people. Brings, uh, brings crisis to us when we realize that the existence of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the coming of this king, has real implications for our lives. If this really happened, if this king was really born, then that brings a, a point of crisis for us, a point in which we have to respond one way or the other. Look at the ways some of the characters in our story respond. First, take a look at Herod. Well, who is Herod? Well, two times in the first three verses, Matthew tells us, he says, uh, that we're told that this was Herod the king. Herod the king. And Herod the king hears the news from these wise men, they show up at his door and they say, where is he that's been born a king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we've come to worship him. Okay, they bring this news, the news that this king has been born. And they say the significance of this birth was displayed in stars and it called us here. This momentous birth. And it's news to Herod. What does Herod think? King of the Jews. I am king of the Jews. You see, Herod had worked really hard to be king of the Jews. Herod wasn't actually um, a Jew himself. He was an Idumean. He was a descendant of the character Esau that we know from the Old Testament. This was Jacob's brother. Maybe you remember quotes like this from the Bible. God saying, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What did Esau do? He turned away from following God. He sells his birthright. And God's favor rests on the younger son, on Jacob. And Esau's descendants continue to wander away from God. They intermarry with the peoples around them, and they follow other gods than the true God. And this man, Herod, is a descendant of him. 
He's not a Jew at all. But what Herod was, was a brilliant politician. See, he had been granted the position of king of the Jews, entitled king of the Jews, by the Romans, whose favor that he had worked so hard to curry. Through changes in government, through changes in leadership, he was always the man at that point with the right gift and the right word at the right time to smooth his career. He was arrested more than once, put on trial, and every time slid right through it and ended up in greater power than he started. He survived all the political unrest that shook out after the death of Julius Caesar, as the leaders arose after that, and eventually Caesar Augustus comes to power, and Herod is able to win his favor as well. He was ruthless in pursuing his ambitions. As Herod neared death, he gave this order that on the day that he died, that elders all across the city of Jerusalem would be put to death to ensure that there would be mourning on the day of his own death. Along the way, he had his wife killed because she was a political liability to him. Over the course of his life, he had ten wives. He had sons by many of these wives. And there was this long, undisputed question in Herod's life of who is going to succeed him? Who's going to be the next king? He made six different wills over the course of his life, naming different sons to be his king after him. He had three of his sons killed. And so, when the wise men show up at his door and say, a star has appeared, the king of the Jews has been born, Herod knows that this star didn't appear to celebrate the birth of one of his own sons. So he knows what he has to do. He schemes, he manipulates, and he prepares to do whatever it's going to take to secure his interests. He summons the religious leaders of Jerusalem, and he says, where is this king going to be born? And they quote to him, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's where this king is going to come from. And he gets that information, what does he do next? He says he secretly summons the wise men to find out when this star appeared. And he says, you guys go find him, and then come back and tell me so that I can go worship him as well. And the wise men go on their way. They're warned in a dream not to return to Herod because of what Herod's going to do, so they slip away. Herod finds out about it. He's furious. So what does he do? He storms into Bethlehem and he kills all the babies, all the baby boys two years old and younger. You see, the birth of Jesus created a crisis for Herod. It was a fork in the road. He had to do something. And Herod's response is to try to kill Jesus. Now we've got Herod. We've also got all of Jerusalem. Look in verse 3. It's just mentioned briefly. It says that when Herod hears the news, he was troubled in all of Jerusalem with him. Okay, the Greek word here for troubled, highly agitated. It's the same word that's used for crowds of people when they riot, when they're that upset, when they're that worked up. The announcement of this birth of the king of the Jews gets everyone into this state of near panic. It's that serious. You see, all of Jerusalem's come to this crisis point too. Wise men showing up saying that there is a new king. How are they going to respond? Well, all of Jerusalem quickly falls into the, into the background in the text that we have this morning. But if you were to flip ahead to the end of Matthew, you would find all of Jerusalem at the trial of Jesus, rising up before Pilate when he says, do you want me to release this man? And they say, no, crucify him. All of Jerusalem turning their back on Jesus as well. And then we also have the wise men. It's interesting how little we know about the wise men and how much we've created to fill in the gaps. 
All we really know about them, it says that they are from the east. We don't know where. It could have been Babylon. Many scholars think that it was. It may well be that these wise men were descendants of the wise men that Daniel interacted with uh, in the time of Israel's exile in Babylon, which means that these men are heirs of an interaction with Judaism that happened 500 years before when Israel was in captivity in their land. Now, wise men, the Greek word is magi. It's, these are people who studied the stars. Okay, we have a song, We Three Kings. They probably weren't kings. These were maybe royal advisors. These were early scientists. They were astronomers. In fact, they were astrologers. They're gazing at the stars, waiting to see what the stars are going to tell them about what's going on in the world. And the unbelievable thing is, they learn something that way. God shows something to them that way. The appearance of this star in the sky, it creates a crisis for them as well. Look, there it is. Star in the sky. Can't ignore it. Can't pretend it's not important. It's telling us something momentous has happened. How are we going to respond? What are we going to do next? Now, we're going to talk in a minute about what the wise men actually do. But they had to do something, a point of crisis in their life. And it's the same for us. Hearing the news about Jesus creates crisis in our life as well. Because Jesus exists, because who he, says, he is who He says He is, this forces my hand. It requires a response from me. It requires a response from you. You can either believe that He's King and accept all the implications of that, or not. You can either follow Him as your King, or not. And that's what happens when somebody first puts their faith in Jesus. When you come to realize that Jesus, maybe this Jesus you've been hearing about all your life, really is who he says he is. And suddenly you realize that has enormous implications for your life. And you realize that you, in fact, have to follow him, and you do. It's what happens when somebody comes to faith and says, yes, that's exactly what I want. I need Jesus. I want him to bring real forgiveness in my life, real eternal life to me in my life. But it's just as much a crisis point for somebody who hears about Jesus and says, no thanks, I'm glad you found something in Jesus. I'm glad that worshiping him does something for your life, but it's not for me. You had that experience where you're asleep and you hear your phone ringing. And maybe it's a phone call that you knew was coming and you know it's important. And you have that moment of, what am I going to do? Am I going to get up? Am I going to answer the phone? Am I going to roll back over and let the answering machine take it? But you've got to do something. The phone is ringing. Or you're driving. My wife and I have had this experience. You're driving down the highway, and suddenly there's a tire in the middle of your lane. What are you going to do? You have to swerve. Which way is it going to be? What are you going to do? There's a crisis that's been dumped in your lap. And that's what Jesus does to us. There he is in the middle of our life. What are we going to do? How are we going to swerve? Are we going to follow or are we going to turn away? And it's not just when you first come to faith. Those of us who have been following Jesus for a while, you know this happens throughout your Christian life. Again, there Jesus is right in the middle of the road. Am I going to follow or am I going to turn away? Herod, everybody in Jerusalem, they all knew that something momentous was happening and it created a crisis for them. A moment when things were different, when they couldn't simply keep going on as usual. They heard that Jesus had to come and they had to respond. Now, some of you are maybe facing uh, this crisis of Jesus for the first time. What are you going to do? Are you going to swerve right? Are you going to swerve left? You see, you can't keep going straight. 
the king has come, and it brings up the question, how are you going to respond? Some of us are facing one of the many other points of crisis that come along our lives after we come to know Jesus. And again, it becomes the point of, are you going to trust me? Are you going to follow me here? Are you going to follow where I lead you next? So a question just to bring up for us right now in this year, how am I responding right now to the crisis that Jesus brings into my life? In all the situations in my life, how am I responding? Believing that God's at work in my life and that I can trust him? Turning toward Jesus the King or turning away from him? Right now, this moment, today, you are responding to the crisis of Jesus. How is it making you respond? So Jesus brings Christ. The second thing he does, he sends us on a journey. We see these wise men. When they see the star and they recognize this crisis that it represents for them, they set out on this journey. They're stargazers. They're scientists. They are seekers. And suddenly these seekers find something. They look up in the night sky. They see this star. They realize everything has changed. And they put away their instruments and they put away their little log book for gazing at the stars and what do they do? They pack up their bags and they get ready to head out on a journey. And this is what all spiritual seekers do, real speakers, seekers do. When they find the thing they're looking for, then they stop seeking and they start following. Now again, we don't know exactly where they're coming from, but the thing about it is that this journey could have been really long. In the nativity scene that we typically see around Christmas, we've got Jesus, we've got Mary and Joseph in the manger, the shepherds have just shown up, and then the wise men pull into town next. Uh, But likely, there was a long gap between those events, between the birth of Jesus and when the wise men actually show up. Uh, In verse 7 and later on in verse 16, both times Herod is asking the wise men about when the star appeared. And when Herod gets that information, his response is to kill all the babies who are two years old and younger. Now, he might have been playing it safe, but you know the difference between a two-year-old and a newborn infant. It's possible that this journey took them as long as two years to show up. This took serious response from them. The king has showed up, and we're going to follow him, and they go on this amazing journey. Another amazing part of this is that Herod and all of Jerusalem are so agitated by this they won't travel the seven miles down the road to Bethlehem to find out what's happened. And here these men show up who have traveled possibly for two years to find out what has happened with this king who has been born. This brings up another question for us. What journey are we on? See, in the New Testament, one of the most common metaphors for knowing Jesus is following him. That he's going somewhere and we're coming along behind him. The Christian life is one of movement. It's one of following Jesus. It means we're going somewhere. And that means that for those of us who are claiming Jesus, it means that our lives can't remain static. Things have to change. Now maybe this idea of your life being a journey isn't in a real common metaphor, the way you tend to think about your life. Life is a spiritual journey. Where am I going? I I don't know. I haven't really thought about that. Well, think about other areas of your life. Uh, Think about your plan for savings. Okay, now some of us are thinking, savings, what are those? But for those of us that are saving money, what's your plan for savings? Okay, now a good financial planner will tell you that everybody has a plan for savings. 
And if you're not putting aside any money right now, then you're planning not to have any money available when you might come into serious financial need. But you're making a plan. Your lack of a plan is a plan itself. It's preparing you for something. Or maybe some of us have been that guy at some point in our life. We're dating a girl, and we're dating, and we're dating, and we're dating. What's your plan? I don't know. We're just dating. I have no plan. Well, sooner or later, you're going to find out that that plan becomes a plan in itself because she's gone to find someone who does have a plan. (laughs) Is this ending in marriage or is it not? I'm just cruising along. Your plan becomes a plan. Or think about your diet. Now, some of us are thinking we're not on a diet. But you are on a diet. We are all making conscious choices every day about the food that we take into our bodies. We're all choosing things at least three times a day, sometimes several times more than that a day, and certainly over Christmas. But everything you take in, it is changing you. Everything you're taking in, you're making a decision towards better health or away from better health, towards a good weight away from it, towards life or in the other direction. And it's the same way in our spiritual lives. Whether you think you're making a decision or not, whether you think you have a plan or not, we are all moving somewhere on the highway at 70 miles an hour. It's not a question of, am I on a spiritual journey, but in which direction am I heading? Herod's on a journey, and it's in the opposite direction from Jesus. Jerusalem's agitated, they're on a journey, and it's one that leads them away from Jesus. The wise men are on a journey, and it's one that's taking them directly to Jesus. And it brings up a question for us, Are we on the right journey? Are we following the right thing? Or maybe for some of us, am I still following the right thing? Or have I been waylaid along the way? Have I stalled out? Have I taken a wrong turn? Are we following the right thing? Another way to ask the question, this year in 2007, what journey are you going to go on? What thing are you going to follow? What's the direction that your life is headed in? And is that direction the direction of Jesus the direction of something or someone else? Is the journey that you're on bringing you closer to Jesus, or is it taking you further away? Now, there's one other journey in this, in this story. Not just Herod, not just Jerusalem, not just the wise men. Not just the journey, in fact, that Jesus calls us on, but there's a journey that Jesus took himself. These wise men travel a long distance to find Jesus. But they're only doing that Because a star appeared that told them that Jesus had already taken a long journey to find them. They're taking a journey of miles, and Jesus takes a journey of elevation. Stepping out of heaven. Stepping into flesh. Leaving the side of the Father to come and be with us. Stepping away from honor, preeminence. Stepping down into mortality. Jesus shedding his glory for the weakness and humility of a baby. Eventually shedding his glory for the weakness and humility of a man on a cross. How are we ever going to have the desire to follow on a journey that costs us something to find Jesus only by this, knowing that Jesus first took a journey for us? That the the life he calls us into is one of response when he has bridged the greater gap, when he's come the greater distance for us. We realize that Jesus journeyed to us to find us and to call us into this journey of following after him. Calls us into a journey. Third thing, Jesus gives us a new treasure. 
History, literature, movies are full of stories of people going to great lengths to find a treasure. People risking their lives for a treasure. People losing their lives for a treasure. Whether that's the beautiful maiden at the end of the story, whether that's the chest of pirate gold, the fountain of eternal life, people go to great risks and great lengths to find a treasure. But here's what's remarkable about this story. These men, these wise men, go on this incredible journey not to find a treasure, but to give a treasure. Look at what they've come to do. Verse 2, when they're talking to Herod, they say, we've come to worship this new king. And when they show up and, and they find Jesus, it says in verse 11, they saw the child, they fell down, they worshiped him. Verse 11 goes on, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, things of great value, gold. Frankincense and myrrh, these expensive perfumes. Interestingly, they were two of the ingredients that were used in the Old Testament for the incense that was burned in the presence of God that only the priests could mix and could only be used in service of God. Things of great value. They come and lay these at Jesus' feet. This was a royal treasure, and it was given to honor a new king. They've traveled all these months, all this distance for this purpose, to lay this treasure at his feet. These wise men come in to worship. Maybe give us a good working definition of what does it mean to worship. Here's what they tell us. Worship means laying our treasures at Jesus' feet. What does it mean to be a people who worship? It means being a people who lay our treasures at Jesus' feet. What is our treasure? What would it look like to put it at the feet of Jesus? What would it look like to worship Jesus extravagantly? And wholeheartedly. There's a woman in our church whose former career uh, was working for a philanthropic trust that gave away lots of money. And taking in the grants and deciding where that money was going to go and distributing it. Now that could either be one of the greatest jobs in the world, or that job for you could be absolute torture. Okay, now imagine yourself responsible for this, writing these big checks for these people, for these projects. And what if each check you're thinking, could have bought a car with that one? Could have paid off my mortgage with that check? Could have gone on a vacation to Europe and even taken my kids with that check? Take that, right? If all we could think of is this treasure that we wish were ours, you would be eaten alive by that job. But what if you were able instead to think, I'm a steward of this. My job, I've been entrusted with this to use it wisely and give it away lavishly. Then what a great job you would have. Giving money away, supporting good causes, blessing people. You see, if you weren't controlled by that treasure, then you'd be free to actually be joyful about giving it away and using it well. You weren't ensnared by it. Well, what are your treasures? What are my treasures? And what's it going to mean this year for us to lay them at the feet of Jesus? What are the things of value that we are given that are to be given in the service of God? Now, this story speaks about really tangible things. Gold, frankincense, myrrh, worldly treasures. And this certainly teaches us that. What are we going to do with the worldly treasures that have been given to us? But it's a lot broader than that just that. 
Think about the other things that are of great value to us. Our time. We even have an expression that time is money, that we think is that valuable. You know what it's like when your life feels strung out in so many different directions. How am I going to find the time for this or for that, even that good thing? Our time is a treasure. What's it going to mean for us to spend it well? What about your emotional or relational energy? Some of you, that phrase has never crossed your mind. But you know what I mean, right? It costs something to know people. It costs you something to invest in people. Sometimes to even have a conversation with people. Those are treasures too. What's it going to mean for us to invest those well? Some of us are at the point maybe where you're still thinking about your career plans. What is it going to mean for you to invest to use the treasure of your career well? Maybe some of us it's something as simple as our reputation. It's a treasure that's been entrusted to us, one that we've worked hard to refine. What's it going to mean for us to lay that at the feet of Jesus this year too? What if we saw all these things in our life, all these treasures, everything we have, not as treasures to hoard, but as treasures to give away? You see, when we take what we have, money, time, reputation, our career, anything, and when we try to bend it back to serving ourselves, then we suddenly find that we're actually enslaved by those things. Those things that we thought were going to give us life actually come to bring us death. Anytime we try to bend them back to ourselves, make them the center of our lives, we take good things even, and when we make them ultimate things, they end up actually destroying us. Now the wise men give us a different picture, lives of worship, lives of seeing what we have not as our right or our possession or as our achievement, but as raw ingredients of worship. That's what they saw in the gold, the frankincense, and myrrh. That's what they saw two years of journey, hardship as. Raw ingredients of worship. They didn't look up in the sky and think, oh no, there's the star. You know, I'm going to have to give up my gold and my frankincense and my myrrh now. I'm going to have to go on this long journey to find this king. I'm going to have to risk my reputation. As everybody knows, laughs at me as I pack my bags. No. What did they think? At last, what we have been waiting for. The star has appeared. The king is born. I want to see him with my own eyes. I want to take this treasure myself and lay it at his feet. I want to honor him. I want to fall on my face before him and worship him. The king is born, and that changes everything for me. These wise men did exactly that. They took what they valued, and they brought it on a long journey to Jesus, and they laid it at his feet. Now, would we be willing to pray this in 2007? Lord, teach me to worship you with everything that I have. Teach me to see everything you've given me as the raw ingredients of worship. Teach me to worship you extravagantly with everything you've entrusted to me. And it leaves us with a question, why would we do that? Well, these wise men come bringing a gift But what they find is that they receive a greater gift than they brought. Because what do they receive? They receive Jesus himself. It wasn't with suffering that they turned these things over to Jesus. They came gladly because they knew they were finding something greater than their treasures. Something worth more than their gold and their frankincense and their myrrh. Something that was worth more than the effort it took to take two years on a journey to find him. 
And the answer is the same for us. We find that in giving over our treasures, we find a greater treasure, Jesus himself. When the wise men returned home, the text doesn't tell us what they think. But I'll bet it wasn't, gee, why did we do that? But instead, what do they do? They return home rejoicing because they had found the king that they came to worship. And a life of worship brings us to the same thing. We find the king that we come to worship. All right, let me conclude just simply with these three questions that are really all the same question. How are you responding to the crisis that Jesus is bringing into your life? What journey are you on? And what is the treasure that you have found? And the wise men point the way for us. Jesus brings us crisis to draw us to him. He calls us on a journey to follow and find him. And he calls us to lives of worship, laying our treasure at his feet, that we might find a greater treasure, that we might find Jesus himself. And may that be more true for us as we step into a new year. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these wise men. And we pray, Father, that the crisis of Jesus would draw us to you. We pray that you would draw us to yourself, that you would give us the treasure of your presence, that you would free us from grasping at all the things of our lives. May we be open-handed, receiving from you and responding in worship. And Lord, we need you to transform us if that could possibly hope to be the case. But we pray in confidence knowing that you can and will do that through your Holy Spirit because you are committed to us, your people. And we thank you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we conclude our worship uh, with the hymn, Jesus Everlasting King. Jesus.